0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, We are coming to the end of this particular semester in our study of the Gospel of John. We'll have one more class after this, and um, then we will take a break for the summer and we will come back. So my intention today, at least, is to finish out this sixth chapter that we have been studying for some weeks now, And then we'll resume. We'll have something special coming up next week, but then we'll resume uh, in the fall. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to John chapter 6. We're going to go ahead and read through the end of this chapter, beginning at verse 60 through verse 71. And then we'll come back and take a closer look. When many of his disciples heard it, that is to say what Jesus had been teaching about being the bread of life which had come down from heaven... who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted them by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You may recall when we did our study on the Sermon on the Mount, that toward the end of that discourse, Jesus said something that was rather somber, something that was a little unsettling uh, to many of us. It's unsettling to me, to be honest with you. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, at the end of that most famous sermon ever preached. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Those are somber words indeed, aren't they? And yet we see them being played out right here in this 6th chapter of John. Uh, Many people who have been following Jesus up to this point with great enthusiasm now are taking offense at what he has to say. And they are turning and they are following him no more. Uh, This really is a turning point in the Gospel of John. And as far as this particular narrative is concerned, this is a turning point in Jesus' own ministry. From this point, you're going to see Jesus begin to shed all of these people that have been following him in droves. Now, this sixth chapter is all about a huge crowd which had been following Jesus. We talked about how he had performed that great miracle, the only one of his miracles recorded in all four of the Gospels, the feeding of the multitude, in which he took five loaves of bread, two small fish, multiplied them, and fed 5,000-plus people. So much so that there were even baskets full left over. So this was a a great sign, a wondrous thing. When Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the crowds followed him there, intent on seeing him perform yet another miracle. Do something else. Satisfy our physical needs. Satisfy our felt needs. But Jesus knew it wasn't their felt needs, it wasn't their physical needs that really needed to be satisfied, as important as those may be. Their real need was a spiritual need, and he said, do not strive for that bread which only satisfies you for a time and then leaves you hungering again, but instead, long for that bread which comes down from heaven, which the Son of Man will give you. And they said, well, give us this bread that that satisfies forever, and Jesus said, I am the bread. I'm what you need. I am the only thing that can satisfy the deepest longing, the deepest hungering of your soul. And we're told that when they heard this word, they began to murmur. They began to grumble. They were offended by the fact that Jesus said that they were hungry, not just physically, but they were hungering spiritually, that there was a void in their life that they could not satisfy. He said, there is a need that you have, but the biggest problem is, he said, you cannot satisfy that need for yourself. He said, I am the only one who can do it. And when they heard that, they took offense. You know, none of us likes to have our flaws pointed out or our weaknesses. And yet sometimes that's necessary, isn't it? Sometimes that is necessary if we're going to grow. And that's what Jesus was saying to them. He's saying, look, I know what you're longing for, and I know what you need, and I'm glad to give it to you, but you have to acknowledge the fact that I'm alone, the one that can do it. And we're told that at this point there was a division. And many of his disciples, now when we hear that word disciple, we often assume it's the 12 that he's referring to, that that band that he had specifically chosen. But you'll notice that there is a differentiation here in the sixth chapter of John, because we're told that many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more, and then Jesus turned to the twelve. So the word disciple here is used in a broader sense. It means many people had been following Jesus at this point. Many people were enthralled with Jesus, initially excited. Remember that parable that Jesus told about the soils? We sometimes refer to it as the parable of the sower. A sower went out and he sowed seed, and some of that seed fell on various types of soil. Some of it fell on the hard path, and it simply glanced off. And some of the seed fell among what? Wheat, or among tares, rather, uh, in the midst of thorns and brambles, and they choked out the life of the plant when it began to spring up. And then he said, some of the seed fell what? On Soil that did not have much root, and it sprung up quickly. It it, it had the appearance of life. It it, it appeared as though this was going to grow. But he said, when the sun came out, it scorched it, and it withered because it had no root. That is exactly what we have here. These were people who initially were excited about Jesus, but then when they began to understand the implications of being one of his followers— When the sun began to come out, they began to wither. They began to melt under the scorching heat. I pointed out um, at the Easter sermon, and if you were here this past Tuesday when I did the Q&A with the grandparents ministry, you heard me talk about the fact that Jesus came into this world and Jesus brought division. We often think of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, we imagine Jesus sort of meek and mild, Jesus gentle and kind and so forth, and Jesus was certainly all of those things, but Jesus was also a highly controversial figure, and wherever he went, he created division. It was a division between those who believed and those who disbelieved. And that wasn't because, as I said, Jesus was just a rabble-rouser. Jesus enjoyed going from place to place and stirring up trouble and causing division in families. It wasn't anything like that. It was simply because Jesus knew that the truth has the power to divide, and it always will. And so wherever he went and he proclaimed the message, he found that there was division. Oh, there might have been an initial excitement. You know the kind of people. You see them, they come to church, and they're very excited, Perhaps this is something novel to them, perhaps they're coming back to the church after many years away, and they come in, and it's one of those Sundays where the choir is just absolutely fantastic, the minister's not going on too long, and he's actually kind of engaging, and, and, and they're, they're, they're initially excited about this, and, and they'll show up the next week, and you'll see them for several weeks, and then all of a sudden you don't see them one week. But they're back the next week, but then you don't see them for two weeks, And then you wonder, where have they gone? They've sort of fallen away. That initial ardor, that initial excitement has sort of dissipated. The new, the novelty of it all has worn off. Well, that's exactly what was happening here In John chapter 6. And sometimes those people fall away because they simply don't like the message that they hear. Initially it's okay, especially if it's on Easter and it's all hopeful and resurrection and all of that. But the next week when they begin to talk about taking up the cross and following me, oh, well, I don't want to hear about that. And so they inevitably fall away. Jesus said that he would bring not peace but a sword. That's ironic because we think of Jesus as the prince of peace, don't we? But he said that the truth will inevitably divide. I want to show you an example of how this takes place. Keep your finger there in John's gospel and turn, if you will, to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. I'm going to show you practically how this works out. This was not just something that was unique to Jesus. This was also something that happened with the apostles wherever they went. And it's an important thing for us to bear in mind as Christians especially those of us who are dedicated to the Lord and we want to follow him, we need to understand that wherever we go, even if we don't intend to, if we're faithful to the gospel, division is going to be inevitable. Now, Acts chapter 13, those of you who've been with me in the study of Acts know that this is a very important chapter in this New Testament book. I often refer to this as the beginning of the missionary era. Now, some people will say, well, the missionary era began on Pentecost. It began with the Great Commission when Jesus sent the disciples out into the world, and that is true. But one of the things that you'll notice when you read through the book of Acts is that the entire period up to the 13th chapter of Acts, the apostles are sharing their faith, but only as the opportunities present themselves. They're being reactive, if you will. When you get to the 13th chapter of Acts, however, everything changes. Uh, This is the first time where the church actually commissions apostles and sends them off to what we would call unreached people groups. They're no longer going to be reactive as the opportunity is presenting themselves. They share the gospel, but instead they are going to go out, find people who've never heard the gospel, and preach to them. And the two that are first sent off are the apostle Paul And a man by the name of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas actually was the senior partner on this first missionary journey. But this was the first journey that Paul ever went on. Now, you know he went on a series of missionary journeys. If you're using a study Bible, you can turn to the back of your study Bible and you'll see the maps of Paul's missionary journeys. He went on three, four missionary journeys, depending upon who's counting. But he went throughout the ancient world, out through the Greco-Roman world, preaching the gospel. But this was the first of the missionary journeys. It was the shortest. It was a brief missionary journey. But what I want you to notice is what happens when the apostles go out and they preach the gospel. So what happens is this. The church in Antioch lays their hands on Paul and Barnabas, these two men, commission them to go out and reach these Unreached people groups. And that's exactly what they do. We're told that they traveled down to a small seaside town called Seleucia, where they got on a boat and they traveled to the Isle of Cyprus. And they preached on the Isle of Cyprus. And almost immediately, when they arrived on the Isle of Cyprus, they faced opposition. Almost immediately. Uh, There was a man there who was the advisor to the governor of the island, the proconsul of the island, and he stood against Paul and Barnabas. So immediately you see opposition. Uh, What I didn't tell you is that Paul and Barnabas actually took with them another traveling companion. His name was John Mark. He was a young man. He was a relative of Barnabas, and they brought him along to sort of train him up in the ministry. Well, John Mark sees this opposition that they face, and Paul really gets into it with this fellow who is advising the governor against them. Uh, His name was Elymas, and he became so angry, Paul became so angry with this man that he pronounced a curse on him. He said, you are going to be blind for a while. Now everybody says, well, I'm not sure that the punishment fits the crime. But I want to remind you of the fact that the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus was also struck blind for a time, wasn't he? And it was in that darkness that he had an opportunity to reflect on the error of his way. So I wonder if this is not actually a grace and a mercy on Paul's part. He doesn't say that you're going to be blind for life. He said you're going to be blinded for a time. It may be that Paul is saying what you need is exactly what I needed. But at any rate... For John Mark, this this young man, he wasn't expecting that kind of opposition as a minister of the gospel. I mean, after all, this is good news. And so we're told that he abandoned the company and he went back to Jerusalem. I've had enough of this. Meanwhile, what happens? Well, meanwhile, what happens is that Paul and Barnabas get back on the boat and they travel back up to the continent and they come to Pamphylia. And then they travel up to Pisidian Antioch. So we'll pick up the narrative in verse 13 of Acts chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's John Mark. He'd had enough. And they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, and Paul goes on basically to rehearse the history of Israel. He's going to preach a sermon. He rehearses the whole history of Israel, of how God had chosen these people and invented been at work all through time and space. And then he comes to the climax and he said, and you all know that a promise had been made that a great Messiah, a savior was going to come from our stock, from the Jewish people, the savior who would not only save our people, but would be a light to enlighten the Gentiles, the savior of the world. And he said, we know who that savior is. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the people had never heard anything like that before. But, you know, you have to keep to the schedule. Church services should not go too long. And so the church service came to an end, but I want you to notice what happens in verse 42. This is every preacher's dream, just letting you know. Hasn't happened yet, but it's everybody's dream. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. In other words, this is fantastic. We've never heard anything like this. You've got to come back. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So what do you see here? There's that initial excitement, that initial ardor. My goodness, we can't get enough of this. I mean, they follow him home to the rectory. Every preacher's dream, every preacher's wife's nightmare. So, this is what's happening. So, look at verse 44 this excitement. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word. Of the Lord. Now the word is spread throughout the entire community. Everybody has come out. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So what do you see happening here? Well, they go into the area. They preach the gospel. There is this initial excitement. But then what eventually happens is there is a division. There is a division between those who believe and there is a division between, uh, with those who do not believe. And on the part of those who do not believe, what do they do? They stir up trouble, they stir up persecution, and they drive Paul and Barnabas from that place. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, um... The results are not all that great in Pisidian Antioch. The word is preached, but the word, because it is truth, produces division. On the part of those who are opposed to the gospel, what happens there is persecution. Maybe it will be different in Iconium. Now, at Iconium, chapter 14, they entered into this Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Sound familiar? Sounds like a repeat of what we had before, but... Look at this, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. And some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. It is exactly the same situation that they'd had in the previous town. So now they go on to Lystra. Surely it's going to be better in Lystra. What you're going to discover, and we're not going to read through the whole thing, it's even worse in Lystra. Because they get there and they're preaching the gospel and miracles are being performed and it's such an extraordinary thing that the people think that Paul and Barnabas are actually gods. That they've come down, they think that Barnabas is Zeus because he's sort of the elder partner, and they think that Paul, who does all the talking, is Hermes, the messenger of the God. In fact, we're told that the priests, you're going to hear a little bit about the the idolatry that existed in the Greco-Roman world in the sermon today, the priests of Zeus come out from the temple ready to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And they're ready to say, you are the gods, we're ready to worship you. But Paul and Barnabas tear their cloaks and they said, no, we're not, we're not gods, we're mere men. And immediately we're told that the people turned on them. And they, who they were ready to sacrifice to, get attacked and Paul gets stoned. And dragged outside the city and left for dead in an unconscious state. So they get up and they go on to Derby. Well, wouldn't you? And is the situation any different in Derby? No, it's exactly the same. Now, the reason I point that out to you is because I want you to understand, as Christians, that is the pattern for ministry. None of us, if we are going to be faithful in this world, can expect anything less than what the apostles experienced, or for that matter, anything less than what Jesus experienced. If we're going to go out and faithfully share the gospel, preach the gospel, you need to understand that the truth will always divide. Because sometimes what the truth has to say about us is offensive. And you could expect that on the part of those who are opposed to the truth, who, as the apostle Paul says in Romans 1, endeavor to suppress the truth, you can expect that there will be persecution. There will be rejection. Earlier in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus entrusted himself to no man. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of men. A very somber statement. So we need to understand that that is inevitable, folks. If you think you're going to go through life being a faithful Christian, really following the Lord, and you are not going to offend anybody or that you're going to be able to avoid persecution, then you need to take a good hard look at your life and ask yourself, am I really following hard after Jesus? I said this is one of the things that we have to watch out for. We are sometimes so concerned about offending others that I wonder if we don't sometimes offend the Lord himself. What he demands is absolute obedience and absolute devotion. So these people found that Jesus was claiming to be the true bread, that they could not satisfy themselves offensive. I want to suggest to you that we still find many of Jesus' claims offensive today. (laughs) It's very easy for us to take a look at those people and say, well, they were just, you know, hard-hearted people. That they were calloused people. But the reality is we get offended by Jesus' sayings today. Don't think for a minute that we don't. They were offended by the fact that he claimed to be divine They were offended by the fact that he came down and claimed to be the true bread which satisfies their spiritual hunger. They were offended by the fact that Jesus said that they could not feed themselves, they could not fill the void in their own lives. They were offended by what he had to say about their spiritual state. But aren't we offended by what Jesus has to say about us? Somebody once said, if you want to know what Jesus was all about, Jesus was all about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. Comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. How many of you feel pretty comfortable this morning? Prepare to be afflicted. What does it take to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it take to be one of his disciples? Well, Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms. He said, if anyone would be one of my disciples, he must first take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross and take up your cross daily. Now, in the first century, everybody knew what the cross meant. To us, to Christians, the cross is a symbol of our our victory. I mean, you know a Christian church when you see it because there's always a cross. There's a cross up there on the steeple or there's a cross at some prominent point in the building. What's the first thing you see when you step inside St. Philip's? You see the cross on the altar. We come down behind the cross. It is the the banner of our triumph. In the cross of Christ I glory, we say, towering o'er the wrecks of time. But you need to understand that in the first century, the cross was a symbol of capital punishment. The worst form of capital punishment imaginable. If you were to have taken somebody from the year let's say, 2 A.D., and transported them forward in time to Charleston, South Carolina, sat them over there on James Island so that they could look at the peninsula with our beautiful church steeples with all the crosses on the top. To them, that would have been appalling. It would be like us being transported 2,000 years forward in time and seeing buildings on which there were lethal syringes and electric chairs. Because that's what the cross represented to those people. It was a symbol of death. And when Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me, what he's saying is to be one of my followers involves a daily death. A daily death to self. Putting yourself second, not first. It's not all about you. Jesus is saying it's all about him. Now how many of you find that, I don't want to see a show of hands, offensive? Jesus said, come follow me on one occasion, and a man said, okay, I will, but let me first go and bury my father who's just died, and Jesus turns to him and he says, let the dead bury the dead. I heard just somebody said, "Mm." (laughs) hmm, and that's right. Now, Jesus was not saying that we shouldn't be concerned for familial relations, that's not what he was saying, but what he was saying was, it's easy to make an excuse as to why I can't come right now, but I'll come later. And Jesus said, There can be no excuses. No excuses whatsoever. I must be first, Jesus said, first before everything else, first before your career, first before your spouse, first before your children, first before your grandchildren. Because whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back, Jesus says, it's not worthy of me. Offensive? <laughs> you better believe it's offensive to us today. So costly discipleship. We won't go into this one because I don't want to belabor the point, but you know what Jesus says about marriage and divorce. I mean, this is one of those passages that every preacher wants to avoid, if at all possible. When you're the rector, you simply assign it to the young curate. You know, let, let him preach on that and irritate everybody. But you know what Jesus said? He said, I tell you the truth. If a man divorces his wife for any reason other than marital unfaithfulness or for some sort of impurity, he says, he causes her to commit adultery. And if he marries somebody else, he too commits adultery. Offensive? You better believe it. How good must I be if I want to get into heaven? You know, I'm pretty good. I've said we always view sort of morality in terms of a sliding scale, don't we? And and, and we sort of picture it this way. There's God way up there at the top, that's perfection, and there's the devil way down there at the bottom. And we all fall somewhere along that scale, don't we? And we know that the Adolf Hitlers are down here, you know, you've got the Adolf Hitlers, the Joseph Stalins, uh, the Saddam Husseins, all those villains of history, they're, they're down here at the bottom in the lower half. Then there's the upper half. And you know we're hoping that God grades on the curve, and that you know if, if we get a sixty percent, you know, you, and, and you sort of go up, and you, you got most of us are there, sort of in the, in the in the sixty or seventy range right there, and then you get up to eighty percent, and that's when you're getting into people like you know Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, and then there's the ninety percent mark, and that's the clergy of St. Philip's. They're up there, they're they're up there at the top, you see, and and then there's God, and we're we're just hoping we get the passing grade. How good do we have to be? And Jesus says, if you want to get into heaven by your own works, by your own goodness, you have to be as perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Doesn't matter if you're better than your neighbor. Not good enough. None of you, Jesus said, is good enough. Jesus said, you're fearful about what the world is going to do to you? You're fearful about what the authorities might possibly do to you. I mean, we're living in this woke culture. We're living in this politically correct environment where we're afraid to say anything because we offend everybody. Don't you worry about that? <laughs> I worry about it. My goodness. I offend people without even getting into the pulpit sometimes. Sometimes. So we're worried about that. We don't don't want to offend. We don't want anybody to get angry with us or upset with us. Jesus says, stop fearing those who can harm the body and worry about the one who can throw you into hell. Now, how does that sound like meek and mild Jesus? Those are his words, not mine. Don't, Don't get mad at me. Those are Jesus' words. Again, on discipleship, Lord, what do I have to do in order to be one of your followers? And Jesus tells the rich young ruler, well, you know the commandments. And he said, oh, I've kept the commandments since I was a youth. And you know, many times we think that, don't we? I mean, I've I'm, I'm not committed any of the big sins. You know, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen. I haven't murdered. I mean, I'm, I think I'm okay. Okay. That's what that man said. Jesus said, well, you know, and I think that rich young ruler came in earnest. I think he was sincere. He really wanted to know. What did he have to do? And Jesus said, well, you know, the commandments. And he said, I've kept them all since I was a youth. And I think he meant it. I think he really had, at least in his eyes, at least according to the world, he had lived a very virtuous life. And Jesus said, well, then there's only one thing that you need. You've got great wealth. Here's what you need to do. Go sell everything that you have. Give the money to the poor and come follow me and you will have riches in heaven and we're told that his countenance fell for he had great wealth. Here was a man who thought that he kept all the commandments and in truth he had broken the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me and as a consequence of that he had broken all the rest. So you can pick up your forms for the shine the light capital campaign right over here as you leave today. sell all that you have, and come follow me. And then there's this one. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, for I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. I've heard that there's a church locally that shall remain nameless, that when this is read at funerals, cuts out that last part. Simply says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They cut off the last part of the verse, no one comes to the Father but by me. Find that offensive, don't we? We say, well, that just doesn't seem right. There ought to be many ways. I mean, what about the Muslims? What about the Hindus? What about the Jews? Are we really to believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and no one comes to the Father but by him? Do you find that offensive? I submit that we sometimes find it offensive. At the very least, we find it difficult. But we need to understand that those were Jesus' words, not mine. You can ignore them, but it doesn't mean that they go away. So we're told that when these people that were so enthusiastic initially heard what Jesus had to say, they too were offended by his words. They said this is a hard saying. The Greek word is skleros. It's the word from which we get scleroderma. It's a medical condition, the hardening of the skin. And it doesn't mean that they found Jesus' words hard to understand. There are some things that Jesus says, I confess, are hard to understand. But that's not the case. What they meant was these are hard to accept. We don't like this. This is offensive to us. This is hard for us to accept. And so we're told that they turned back and they followed him no more. And that's what Jesus meant when he said there will be many on that day who say, Lord, Lord. And he said, I will never know you. Do we still find Jesus' words hard to take today? I submit to you that we certainly do. And so when Jesus sees all of these people turning back and following him no more, he looks at his disciples and he looks at the crowd and he said, well, I understand that you take offense at me, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What's going on there? Well, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's one of the most insightful commentators, got it right. He had a great illustration. How many of you remember, so there's some young people in here, so they may not remember because they grew up in an age of DVDs and, you know, um, video cassette recorders, but Some of you may recall that when you were in high school, you had to watch a film in science on anatomy or something like that. And the film was on those projectors with the two reels. You remember that? And you would go through, and every now and then it would break. And everybody would go, oh. And you know, the teacher had to try to splice it all together. And sometimes they had to run it backwards. You ever see that? There's a guy up there on the diving board and he jumps off the diving board and he goes into the water and there's a huge splash and then you run it backwards and it's even more entertaining backwards, quite frankly, because you see him come up out of the water miraculously. The water closes up and he ends up back on the diving board. It's extraordinary. And basically what Jesus was saying, Martin Lloyd-Jones contends, is that, would you like me to do that? I have come down from heaven. I have come down to satisfy the deepest longing of your hearts and your souls. I have come down to pay the price for sin. I have died upon the cross. I have been laid in the tomb. I have risen again. And you take offense at all of this? What if we were just to run the whole thing backwards and I was to go back to heaven and there would be nothing left? How would you feel about that? The people were silent. They begin to drift away, and then Jesus turns to the 12, and he says, what about you? What about you? You want to go away? And Peter says, Lord, where shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Folks, he still has the words of eternal life. He is still the bread of heaven. The things that he says we find offensive, I know. We live in a world and a culture that finds the message of the scriptures offensive, hard to accept, not hard to understand. You know, if you grew up in an age that is different from the age in which we're living, if you grew up, if you were born 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, you grew up in a very different world than the one in which we are operating. It's as simple as that. We're living in an age in which discipleship is costly. It is costly. And the world finds Jesus' words offensive, and many people still find his words offensive today. And the question is this, will you fall away? Will you turn back? Will you follow him no more? Because you find that what he has to say about you and about your life is offensive. See, the wonderful thing about Jesus is that he does not come to wound. Well, he does wound, but he doesn't come for the purpose of wounding us. He comes for the purpose of saving us. But in order for us to be saved, we need to recognize that there is something from which we need to be saved. We need to see ourselves for what we really are, not what we imagine ourselves to be. And that's what Jesus does. And when we allow ourselves to be opened wide, what he comes along as he pours on the salve of his grace and his mercy, and he begins a process of healing in us. He begins to transform us evermore into the image of himself. We lose our lives, but in the process of doing so, we find them. I think I've told you this story before, it's what I call the parable of the overturned board. You know, if you go out into the woods and you feel or into a field and you see a, a piece of plywood that's been out there for some time, and you turn over that plywood, it's been there for some time. Well, what do you see immediately? Well, first of all, you see all of this grass that has been matted down, and it's sickly because it has not been exposed to the sun. The other thing that you also see are all these wriggly things, worms and bugs and creatures, maybe a snake or two. And what does it do? It runs for cover. Why? Because it's been exposed to the light. And they're creatures of the darkness. So they they run for cover. But, you know, if you leave that board there overturned now, you come back just a few days later, what you'll discover is that that grass that had been so matted down and sickly has started to turn green and grow and flourish under the warming rays of the sun. I submit to you that that is the same way with Jesus Christ. It is not easy to have our lives exposed. Our initial reaction is wriggle for cover. But if you allow yourself under the searching rays of God's grace and love to expose you, to reveal your flaws, and you allow him to begin to work in your life, you will discover true healing. Folks, I know that Jesus' words are offensive to us. I know that they wound us. Some of you are probably wounded by just some of the passages that I went through. But what would we do if he had never come in the first place? What would we do if he went back? His words do sometimes hurt, but they are also the words of eternal life. God grant that we might hear them and receive them and allow them to heal us of our deepest wounds. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this sixth chapter of John's gospel. It is a powerful message to us. We discover that in many ways we're not any different from these people, We have an initial ardor and excitement for the great things that Jesus does, the signs and the wonders, the miracles that he performs in our lives. We love the words of comfort and encouragement, but we do not like those words that cut. And our desire is to run away, to turn back and follow no more. But Lord, where shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So grant us the grace to open our hearts, knowing that you do not come merely to wound, but to heal, to restore, and to save. Grant that this may be true in our lives. It's like an aspirin. It's like an aspirin, folks. You don't chew the aspirin, you swallow it whole. Grant that we may, O Lord, swallow your word and be blessed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.